Daniel Mission of June Homes estimates that 20% of rentals are ripe for renovation and rental rate increases. A little investment can go a long ways. Just ask Noga, a Hell's Kitchen multifamily owner we chatted about in this episode. And rates are rising. Inflation is high. Home price appreciation is cruising. Where should you be bullish about the rental environment? Virtually everywhere, says Daniel. I truly enjoyed both episodes with Daniel, and I really hope you do too. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott, coming back with a, uh, a part two here with Daniel Mission, CEO and founder of June Homes. Daniel, thanks for spending more time with me, my friend. Great to be here back, Dalton. I really enjoyed the previous episode. Looking forward to this one. Let's do it. Beautiful. So let's hit the ground running. Rental prices. Home price appreciation has been up and to the right the last few years. It has been on fire. But something that's been even a wilder market has been the rental price area. Uh, you're seeing wild, wild increases across the board in most every market, right? And but part of that is a function of home price appreciation tying over. But in, in a lot of areas, uh, rental growth has, has outpaced and in a lot of ways, significantly outpaced home price appreciation. So, you know, whenever I see such rapid and deep growth it's it's great if you're a landlord but yep. i always feel like there's a double-edged sword right it's never as clean as everybody's happy with, with this piece so walk me through what you're seeing in the rent growth and at a deeper level uh, do you see a same double-edged sword scenario there so you're, you're not starting with easy questions huh <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Look, I mean, let me give you like 30 seconds on how we think about overall pricing. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I could, I could talk a little bit more about sort of um, what's going on like this specific moment in time. So one of the things that we actually realized is, again, because we are, we're, we're outside, we we're from outside of the industry and we came, like my team and I came from completely different places. Like our CTO, for example, was a PhD in astrophysics who spent the last 10 years researching different universes and using uh, macro data to basically analyze universes and different stars. And I came from hospitality. What we realized is that the way pricing is done in multifamily is completely broken and it's completely outdated. And it's absolutely not data-driven, and it's absolutely gut-driven, uh, and it's very uh, subjective to uh, uh, to opinion of certain individuals. So one of the like a bigger piece of piece of thinking here is that we essentially think that pricing in multifamily should become more data-driven, and pricing in June homes is very different from pricing in traditional multifamily. When we price our units, we in real time adjust our price to the actual demand of what's actually going on. If we list a unit at $1,000 uh, per month, as a hypothetical example, and then mm -hmm. we, we in real time track how many website visitors do we get? How many visit, how many views our listings are getting on different platforms? How many people are submitting their applications? What's going on at the top of the funnel? And then in real time, we're adjusting our prices. If we're getting a lot of demand to the unit. We are, our dynamic pricing is increasing. If we're not getting enough traction, our dynamic pricing is, is, is uh, decreasing. Depending on the lease start date, lease end date, prices are dynamic. Depending on the duration, prices are dynamic. Depending on what package does the person choose, furnished, unfurnished, partially furnished, prices are dynamic. So to me, 
Pricing in multifamily needs a major revamp across the industry. It needs to become more big data driven. Multifamily is really behind other consumer facing industries in terms of how we do our pricing. If you look at hotels, pricing is so much more sophisticated. Even though it's the same piece of real estate, pricing is much more efficient. You take data from markets, you take events data, you take data from your competitors. There is so many different data inputs that contribute into pricing and it's adjusted programmatically in real time. So that's just sort of like our overall take on pricing. So pricing needs to become more efficient as a whole holistically. What's going on today? There is a whole consumer movement today. There is, if you look on social media, there is a major trend on TikTok and, uh, and Instagram where people are really complaining about losing their COVID rents. Uh, tenants are at odds with landlords because your traditional landlord had to drop their prices to get their units rented in uh, during, during the COVID peak. And today when they're increasing their prices, tenants are complaining and there is a tenant movement. Uh, they're losing their units. It's a real thing. If you look at like TikTok, it's like it's a major movement and it's getting picked up by major national media. So to me, the way to really avoid this and the way to really holistically solve this is to work on providing products that tenants want. Not just like real estate owners have more than one lever and that lever is not to increase or decrease prices. That's not the only tool that we could use. We could be creating products that are more appealing for consumers, packages that are more appealing with consumers, upselling services that are more appealing to consumers to make unit economics work for our landlord partners. So when COVID hit, the way most landlords reacted is by dropping prices and giving concessions. That was a default reaction to the bigger problem. But our reaction was creating more flexibility. For example, instead of dropping prices in the middle of the COVID, we introduced a plan that allowed people to automatically extend their lease for 30 days. It was essentially a month-to-month -month lease priced at an attractive price. And it gave us flexibility to essentially have units roll over every month and gave tenants flexibility, a product that they were looking for, a product that's much more flexible at the time when people couldn't commit. And we got our uh, occupancy up that way without actually losing our rates. So I know this is not directly answering your question, but I guess the two points that I want to make. Point number one is the industry needs to become truly data-driven in pricing. This whole idea where a broker can walk into the unit and say, this is $2,622 because this is like, this is what I think it is. That's just, <laughs> that's outdated. That's just wrong. Human brain is not good in making pricing decisions by default. So machine learning and algorithms are much better at it. And it's proven by every single developed industry under the sun from airlines to hotels to e-commerce. That's part one. And part two, we need to be building products that consumers want and not just play increase or decrease prices as a reaction to major things like COVID. Yeah, no, the, the finger in the wind approach, that's, that's the way it is, right? It's really it's, that it's, way. It's like, why do you raise rents? Well, because I can, because I feel like that's what I can get that's it. And, and certainly there, you know, there's a part of the pyramid of investors who take a, a data-driven approach, but just as an industry, there's, there's certainly room for more, like you said, dynamic pricing. Like, like whenever you're describing the pricing model on your end, I, I, the first thing I thought of was Uber, right? Sure. And like, as opposed to the old taxi way, which I didn't have a ton of experience with the taxi world, but a little bit when I was a, a kid traveling around with my dad. And that lack of transparency, um, there's great inefficiency around it. And, you know, I look at, at your approach as kind of a corollary to the, the Uber approach to the taxi world. You just had 
clunky. Like there's no rhyme or reason behind pricing, but then you have dynamic pricing, all of these factors that stack up to make it right. just a more, more fair, transparent environment. And that's, it's incredible that in one of the most expensive parts of your life, like you mentioned in the last episode, like you're going to spend more money on housing, whether you're renting or buying than probably anything else in your right. life, that there has been such opaqueness lack of technological development, lack of data driving decision-making there and, and just kind of emotion and how do we feel about it? And this, you know, this is something that I like and I'm going to pay for it. I don't know how it stacks up. And if this, these dollars and cents make sense, it's kind of insane whenever you break it down that way to think about certain facets of the industry and, and how, how much opportunity is there, but that's the silver lining, right? There's massive opportunity and the direction that you and June Holmes are heading, that's the next wave for this space. So let me throw another 10 seconds about how we did pricing in hotels, because I think that could be yeah. interesting. So okay. when, when we, when we rent our, rent our hospitality business every day, there was a report called STR short term rental report. And essentially, this is a system where individual hotels anonymously contribute their average rental price, their occupancy, and their REPAR, revenue per available room. And they, they submit it every day to a certain system. System anonymizes and sends back the report of all your surrounding hotels with their anonymous rates and their anonymous occupancy. So you as a hotel owner or a pricing manager in a hotel, you have immediate visibility as to what is the demand in the overall market, what is the supply in the overall market, and you adjust your price in real time based on that. Imagine if in multifamily, we had an anonymous way to exchange data with each other that would essentially create a much more sophisticated pricing algorithm that would react flexibly to increases in demand and, and supply and to the balance of demand and supply. We're not, we don't have that data today. We need more quality data and we need to become more data driven in our approaches to pricing, leasing, management and everything else. And that's, and that's, and that's a good thing in the long run for everyone. It's going to give tenants ability to rent uh, at times when they can get a better better deal when the the, the the demand is lower and therefore they can they can get more market power and that will give landlords ability to uh, build their leasing strategies that are much more flexible to demand and supply so that's really the, the kind of things we think about and that's really the kind of instruments that we think this industry will transition to yeah, everybody loves efficiency, transparency, fairness. It's hard to argue against any of those, <laughs> the core principles that flow into what you're doing. Staying on the data topic, right? So, so you and the team, you built an algorithm that detects, you know, shabby apartments, uh, apartments with uh, good upside potential, untapped potential, and you have a process to really inspect, upgrade, and list and rent those units out in a super short time frame. And I want to, uh, you know, tell me about that. But really what I want to get to is the story of Noga. There's a great Hell's Kitchen multifamily <laughs> example with some mind-blowing numbers that, you know, just someone sitting on a pile of gold that you know, just didn't see the, the potential there and a little mining and, and you hit the mother load. So walk me through that. Yeah, it was, it was actually a really interesting time. So June Holmes was originally called Residence and it was a completely different company, completely different name. And the original business deal was terrible. It didn't end up working. We basically like, it was just not going anywhere. And we were trying to, it was a multifamily space and it was in the space of intersection of technology and real estate. And we, we made a bunch of mistakes and we realized that it's not the thing that's going to, uh, that's going to fly here. And at one time, but, but, we, but we knew that like the whole idea that technology will change the space, the whole idea that the space will transition from 
fragmented to consolidated, from unbranded to branded. All the trends were clear. It was going in that direction. But we didn't have the right business model. We didn't know how to solve that problem. We were just, we didn't want to build another, you know, luxury corporate housing brand. We wanted to find a real unlock to a real market and a really clever way to solve the problem. And I remember like nine months into that like terrible moment of trying to find product market fit, tons of uncertainty. We're running out of cash. You know, your typical startup story, how you're running out of cash, how it's almost, it's almost like, like, like you, it's, it's almost like doomed at that point. And we were sitting and it was like maybe a year in uh, a year in the company. And we were like, how do we solve it? How do we solve it? And we we're like thinking and talking about it all the time. And then in parallel, I was looking for my own apartment to rent myself. And I remember I went to Street Easy and I wanted to get a one bedroom in Hell's Kitchen. I sort of like scrolled through the listings and then I went to the last page where I typically don't, where typically consumers don't go. Like you get first two, three pages and then whatever is at the tail end, you never even go there. And I just clicked on the last page and I was like, okay, let me, let me actually see what's going on here. And I go online and the average price for a one bedroom call it is $3,000. And I see this listing that's listed at $1,500. I'm like, what, what is this? Like, what, why is it, why is it so much cheaper? Is it just another clever broker doing a bait and switch tactic? Is it, or is it, or is it, or like, what is going on here? And I just genuinely got interested, picked up my phone, called the, called, called, called the listing and it was listed by owner. So I'm speaking to the owner and I'm like, hi, you know, I am interested in renting your unit. Why is your price so much cheaper? She's like, well, I, I mean, that's always what I've been charging. I've been, I've had 10 tenants in the past 30 years. That's what I've been doing. I'm like, okay, fine. Let me go and check it out. So I go to the building, meet with this woman. Her name is Noga. She's a 75 year old, you know, Israeli woman that owns uh, a building, a building in Hell's Kitchen. And, uh, um, and, 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 she, and she says, and I'm like, Hey, like you have a six unit building. It's a $10 million asset. Why are your pricing so low? Like what's like, why is it so low? What's, what's wrong with it? And I realized that the only thing that's really wrong with it is it's slightly outdated. And we have an owner that just doesn't know how to operate their listings, that doesn't know how to manage their, their portfolio, they, 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 that doesn't trust brokers, have, doesn't work with brokers because essentially brokers don't add value. And that person is just, you know, they just don't know how to, how to operate their portfolio. So essentially what I did is I said, look, how about we do this? I'm going to take your unit for $1,500. I'll invest my own money in renovating your unit. And if I can bring you a tenant that's going to pay you more, I will only take a portion of that increase. Worst case scenario, you get free renovations and some stupid guy who basically invests cash in your apartment. Best case scenario, you're going to make a little bit more rent. So went in, signed the lease for $1,500, went and went to Brighton Beach, hired a bunch of Russian guys for, for cash, went to Home Depot, bought a bunch of things. Three days later, renovated this apartment, invested $5,000 you know, and basically um, created created a listing that got rented for double the, the double the price. I was like, wow, oh my God, like you literally have a millionaire sitting on an asset worth $10 million that they have owned for the last 40 years that doesn't know how to operate, that doesn't like, doesn't provide a product that is appealing to the market. That listing, by the way, was sitting on the market for 120 days. There was no tenant that wanted to rent it. It was outside of the housing system. That is one of the ways to solve housing, housing shortage because you're essentially taking units that no one would ever rent and you're bringing them to the condition where it's built to consumers. At the same time, you're increasing yield for a multifamily owner so they can pay their mortgage and have a sustainable business. And you essentially, it's a win-win for everyone. Do you have any idea, and this is, a, this is a big, broad question, but do you have any idea what the ballpark percentage of units are that 
with you know some light but material upgrades would have a meaningful upside on rental uh, income. Is it you know is it is it a small portion? Is it the majority? Is that the story that you're sharing about Noga? Is that something that's kind of the the exception to the rule or is that you know a large number of units and just maybe a, with some thoughtfulness from a landlord's perspective and a little bit of investment uh, you could really throttle up the income there so uh yeah i mean 70 percent of all multifamily is owned by mom and pops mm-hmm. across the country out of that percentage 15 to 20 percent of units we consider undervalued as june homes in markets where we did that research but the thing is that it's, for us, it's not about being the best construction company. We're not a construction company by default. We're a right. brand that's building better consumer experience. And we are, a, 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 so we are a layer of service and a layer of technology. We're not the best dial people or plumbing people in the world. We are yep. good in basically building processes and building technology that streamlines it. So we, we don't like limit ourselves to uh, distressed and undervalued real estate, even though that's where we started. We focus on essentially creating that consumer experience uh, and creating that consumer loyalty that improves performance of underlying assets and taking only a portion of the value that we have added. We're not a typical broker that's going to charge a broker fee. We're not a typical management company that's going to charge a management fee. We are essentially able to create additional value by providing better experience to consumers and only take a portion of that that additional value that we created. So we're a no-brainer for tenants or we're a no-brainer for landlords because both get a fair and a good deal. And the only way we, th- we believe in, like, the only way we think this can be successful in the long run is if we create a win-win kind of situation versus try to arbitrage some inefficiency that exists in the market. Yeah, for sure. And when, from your seat, are there any markets that you're most excited about from a rent growth perspective you know, call it the balance of this year. Is there any place that uh, really just focusing efforts on, or is it just a broad bullish on the whole country? Let's go after it all approach. It's really interesting. I mean, there are markets that obviously got a, a major influx of new renters that everyone knows about the Miami of the world, the San Diego of the world. But the thing is that we think that uh, young consumers and young renters will continue living in major cities. The whole idea of people suddenly moving from New York to a rural area um, is, is just never really bought into that. We think that young people are so driven by their social circles, by their friends, by their daily lives, by their restaurants, by their communities, that they're, they're just not going to live cities. People want to be in cities. People want to meet other, other people. The whole idea, even though you may see like an increase in travel for people, people traveling more frequently or for longer, we still think that people are going to continue living in the cities. So my answer to your question is, I think all major US markets are going to be fine in the long run. Uh, There are markets that got a spike. There are markets that got a decrease. But in the long run, we believe in all major US markets. We are very strong in New York. That's our home base. That's where we started. Basically, we have, you know, it's one of our largest markets. But we're also doing really well in emerging markets. We've, We've done extremely well in Austin this year. We've done extremely well in California this year. So we think that if it's the right price, the right product, every market is the right thing. Yeah, I, the suburb comment, right? Whenever COVID hit and we, we got many months into it, there was this talk and scare about everybody's going to move out of San Francisco, yeah. New York, LA. Those places are going to be ghost towns. 
And from the outset, I was scratching my head. I was like, you mean to tell me that people who live in these world-class cities with economies that trump many countries economies even big countries right yeah major and, and that that all of a sudden and and granted you know there there was uh, a lot going on for a while but the idea that folks were going to just leave in mass and these cities were going to become ghost town there was a period of time whenever that was that was big talk uh, it didn't buy it, and I'm super happy that it did not pan out. I mean, you had really yeah. just a shuffling of, you know, some people moved from California to Texas, and then the opposite street. You had people moved New York to California. You had more of, of maybe a, a reshuffling of the deck yeah. than any cards getting thrown out. And I, from the beginning, was skeptical and head-scratching on that one. And I'm, I'm happy but not surprised that it's panned out to be the way it is, where these – these these cities have been through a lot just by nature of being major metropolises for you know many decades north of a century beyond that many of them uh, so the idea that we were going to have a fall off the edge of the cliff and everybody was going to go you know it could be yeah. um, I'm going to trade in my uh, Ferragamo loafers at Goldman Sachs and go be a rancher out in Montana it's just not uh, just the the furthest thing from reality in my mind. So I I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I'm with you on the the bullish across the board piece. One thing I definitely want to touch on too. You have a lot of exciting things going on at June Holmes. Uh, but talk to me about the fund, right? It's something on your radar this quarter. We're in Q1 2022. Can you walk me through what's going on there? Yeah, so it's uh, it's actually it's actually really interesting. So June Homes essentially right now is like an asset light service layer, and we work with landlords and we essentially support landlords and tenants, but we don't own any real estate. And we started seeing one really interesting trend. And we started seeing how different June Homes landlords in different cities are growing their portfolios with June Homes. So we started seeing how someone in DC went and bought seven single family homes and basically exclusively to work with June Homes. They like they were they it, it worked extremely well for them and they're just like in the pro and they the only thing that they started doing is just buying real estate and handing it off to June Homes. Buying real estate and handing it off to June Homes. Because they trust us, they know we are honest, they know we provide good quality customer service. They know that they get better performance with us than with traditional market. They know that we're thinking long term versus short term. And they started doing this. Same thing happened in Boston. Same thing happened in San Francisco. Same thing happened. Multiple groups did the same thing in New York. So we're like, that's so interesting. We essentially enable real estate investors to go and focus on what they actually want to do, close more deals. So at, at one point, like those real estate developers came to us and they said, look, I want to be a group that works with you guys on like in, in, in this city or in this neighborhood or in this like part of Brooklyn. So, and um, apparently we were like, okay, sure. Like, why not? We would, we would love to, we would love to, to be involved. So what's going on right now is we're essentially working with multiple groups in multiple cities to set up separate June Homes funds that are going to start buying underlying real estate. June Homes is um, going, to, going to have skin in the game as a, as a, as a co-GP of those funds. And we essentially work with different groups on that. And um, uh, we are looking for more partners to uh, uh, to do that with. And yeah, I mean, uh, and obviously work with amazing partners like you guys to uh, to, uh, to on, the, on the debt side and the, the leverage side. I love it. I love the hustle, always hungry, always looking for every angle of attack. That's how you keep growing, thriving, more resources right. to to put behind the engine. 
So that is beautiful. Daniel, I can't thank you enough for taking time, not only for one episode, but for two episodes. And I absolutely got to get you back on down the road for a check-in. I'm excited about what you and June Holmes are doing. Uh, congratulations on all of the growth and where you are. Super bullish on you and the crew forward flow. So uh, absolutely love it. And thanks again for joining. Great being here. Thank you so much. Great. And and one thing before I forget, if somebody wants to learn more about June Holmes, where where do they go? Juneholmes.com. Uh, they can, uh, um, for owner's page, we have a separate page where we list all of our information. We have all contact information there. Reach out to us. We're happy to chat. Beautiful. Juneholmes.com. Reach out, see what it's about. Thanks again, Daniel. Thanks everybody for listening. Take care. Awesome. Thank you. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.